Church family, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 1, specifically verses 3 through 11. If you are with us last week, we started a new journey through Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi this fall. We will, until uh, Advent, we'll be walking through Philippians as a church family, and so I'm excited for you to turn with me to uh, this extended prayer, this intercessory prayer that we find starting in verse 3 to verse 11. And as we hear Paul's prayer, it's a reminder to us that one of the chief callings that we have as Christians, one of the great privileges that we have is, is to pray for one another. James chapter 5 verse 17 is a command, pray for one another. We know that potency and the power of prayer. We can give testimony to that. Sometimes it's difficult for our culture to understand. You, you have sort of these mockable memes now of thoughts and prayers, and many people don't understand really what, what we're saying when a Christian says to someone sincerely, hey, I'm thinking about you and I am praying for you. At times, we, we can be quick to move away from just the power of that statement that, that I am thoughtfully praying for you, especially in light of, of the happenings of this last week. Our hearts have been pulled as we've seen the images of, of believers and non-believers in Afghanistan who are facing these tumultuous times. And what do we do as believers as we pray for those in the midst of these situations that are horrendous and and are unimaginable for all of us here. There's some of you that have friends and family members that are struggling through sickness, struggling through diagnoses, uh, struggling of the, of the rise of the Delta variant. And, and I wish, and you do too, that there was just this magic wand that we could wave and we just move past this. But you see that this is affecting people in, in real specific ways. And there's tremendous sickness and there, there's even death that, that it continues to, to be with us. And what do we do? Well, we bend our knees and in prayer. Uh, we, we have responsibilities. No doubt we have responsibilities. But the greatest gift that we can give to someone in the midst of these situations is us on our knees in prayer. I, I believe wholeheartedly that the Genevan reformer John Calvin was right when, when he said to make intercession for men and women is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them. The greatest gift that you can give to someone, the most practical gift that you can give to someone is your thoughtful, sincere, deep, affectionate prayer for them. But don't just take my word for it. As we turn to God's word, one of the uh, powerful reminders that we have is Paul's dependency upon God in prayer. Now, if you were reading uh, letters in that ancient uh, world, that Greco-Roman world, especially letters that were written by non-Christians, you would have a similar uh, flow, uh, customary greetings. He would, the letter writer would say, this is who I am as I write the letter. I'm writing to this group of people. And then non-Christian letters, especially in Paul's day, would have this invocation to the gods. They would pray for blessing and health to be upon the recipients of the letter. And so what we discover is Paul in verses 3 through 11 takes this customary sort of letter greeting and he infuses it and transforms it with the centrality of the gospel. And it really is a pattern for us to trace as, as we're men and women of prayer praying for people because we love them 
we, we discover something of a, of a pattern that we can trace in verses 3 through 11. So read alongside of me in your copy of God's Word. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As we trace Paul's intercessory prayer here at the outset of his letter to the church at Philippi, we see three truths to hold on to, three ways that we can pray for one another. And the first is, is notice that Paul has a prayer of thanksgiving here in verses 3 through 5. At the end of verse 5, you see a period, but it's not there in the original language in the New Testament. Verses 3 through 6 is one long run-on sentence prayer for the church at Philippi. And it it really is fitting in many ways because what Paul is doing here is not this scholarly treatise on the power of prayer, but it's out of the overflow of his affection for people that he loves. You can imagine Paul closing his eyes, dictating orally this this epistle, and, and Timothy's writing it down, and he closes his eyes, and he sees these images of Christians at the church at Philippi that he loves dearly. And he's saying, every time I see you, every time I see you in my mind's eye, every time I think of you, I thank God for you with joy. First reference to that that three-letter word that is going to be this reoccurring theme of the book of Philippians. Paul is writing most likely in a prison cell in Rome. We'll come to this next week. He most likely thinks that he's not going to get out of prison here. But when he closes his eyes, thinks of the recipients of this letter, he is filled with affection. He is filled with joy. I hope you have those kinds of people in your mind. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, I am sure you do. I am sure that if you're a follower of Jesus and you closed your eyes right now and you allowed God to, to work in your heart when you hear these words, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer, you know who's going to come to your mind? Well, it might be a mom that you saw modeling the, the importance of prayer as you grew up. It might be a dad who, who you saw uh, taking you under his wing and, and loving you with intimacy, but pointing you to the gospel. And every time you think of them, whether they're here on earth or they're in heaven, you thank God upon every remembrance of them. Were they perfect? No. But did God use them? Yes. In powerful ways in your life. Some of you close your eyes and you you think of an eighth grade Sunday school teacher. Some of you close your eyes, you think of a youth pastor. Some of you close your eyes, you think of a high school teacher or a coach or a professor. You think of people and they they flood your mind and you you can allow Paul's words to become your words as you pray with thanksgiving and joy because your heart is knitted to them. They might not be your biological family, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know the truth that you're knitted together when the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God in them and the Spirit of God in you communes together. There's this unique connection. Paul uses the word partnership in verse 5. 
He says, I thank God because of the partnership that we have together. You have been with me through thick and thin, good times and bad times. He says in the defense and the proclamation of the gospel, he's most likely referring to Acts chapter 16, what Luke narrates when he comes to Philippi, he preaches the gospel, he's imprisoned. He is saying, those early Christians, y'all were with me then? And now that I'm in Rome, most likely not going to get out. You're still with me. You're still partnered. It's, it's a word in verse 5, partnership. This is how it's translated in the English Standard Version. It's a rich word in the original language of the New Testament. It's a word that some of you have heard. It's that word koinonia. It's, it's a word, uh, you know this, from, from languages to languages, uh, when you translate, there's oftentimes not a one-to-one correlation for a word in one language to our language. And this is really true for this word. Sometimes it gets translated fellowship. You see partnership. But it's a word that just has this, this multitude of meanings. And so when Paul says, I thank you for the, the koinonia that we share together, the partnership, he is saying, I thank you for the alliance we share, the camaraderie that we share, the connection that we share, the way that you have partnered with me in the gospel, and we are connected together. Although I am far from you, you are with me and I am with you because there is this communion that we share in the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us. This is powerful. We live in a day and age that tempts us to isolation. We live in a day and age where we we believe the lie that you need to stand on your own two feet, show no weakness, do it on your own. Paul is saying we need partnerships in the gospel. We need one another. I hope you know that. Because Satan is going to whisper a lie in your ear. He is going to whisper, you got this. Nobody needs to know how to pray for you. Nobody needs to know what, what you, uh, when you lay your head on your pillow at night and you go to sleep and the burdens that you care, hold that in. That's the best thing to do. That's the lie of the enemy. We don't need everyone to know everything that we think and feel, but we need someone and somebody's who are on their knees praying for us in this unique connection, this koinia, this partnership here. Satan's strategy is to isolate you. Satan's strategy is to pull you off to the side. And he gets you isolated to the place where he can whisper lies to you, deceive you, confuse you, and ultimately steal from you. If you're a follower of Jesus, he can't steal your salvation. But I can tell you this, he can, he can rob you of the joy of your salvation. And many of you know that. You've known and I've known people. We've been in experiences where we've isolated ourselves from the body of Christ and it is not a spiritually healthy place to be. Here is Paul. He is isolated physically. But the first thing that he is saying is, is I'm connected. I'm connected in this deep way, this koinonia, this partnership. It is a prayer of thanksgiving that we see. But in verse 6, Paul, he transitions in this unique way to a prayer of confidence. He's talking about the the connection that they've had from the first day till this moment where Paul is in prison in Rome. And he sort of has an aside here where he says in verse 6, I'm sure of this. Now that I'm talking about our connection to one another and partnership, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's this wonderful Holy Spirit 
inspired aside, who began the good work? God did. Who finishes the good work? God does. What is the good work? It's your salvation. It's my salvation. It's the salvation of the Philippian believers. This is a wonderful truth to hold on to. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, we're going to have to to see the, the, the fullness of this truth. Paul doesn't say everything that he wants to say about this in this moment. He's going to talk about, he's going to talk about just in a few, in just one other chapter here, about working out our salvation of fear and trembling. But then he says in verse 13 of chapter 2, because it's God that's working in us. And so even when he talks about our role and our participation in pursuing holiness, pursuing God in the practical steps of our life, he is going to remind us in the same breath, hey, don't forget, it's God that's working in you. That's what I told you in verse 6 of chapter 1, that I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, throughout his life was so doubtful of the assurance of his salvation. Much of the uh, Protestant Reformation can be seen through this, this question that Luther had, can I ever be sure of my salvation? Can I do enough to be sure? His answer was no. Can I look into the mirror and see God's work in my life over the decades and then see for sure that I am saved? And Luther comes to this place that this is wonderful truth that he receives from the Apostle Paul, that the assurance of our salvation is not within us, but is outside of us. We look not to ourselves for the assurance of our salvation, but we look to Christ. We are imperfect. He is perfect. Paul says, hey, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And we need to hear this. I don't know about you, but I know what it's like to start something and not finish it. I mean, do we have some starters in this room? Do, do we have some people that know what it's like to start resolutions and with your best laid plans on December the 31st, and you're going to read this many books, you're going to be faithful to this diet plan, and there's something about the end of January going into February. When COVID hit, I thought, okay, I've got, I've got these writing projects that I think I'm going to do. You know where that, what happened to those? They're just sit, sitting there just laughing at me on my computer. They're unfinished projects. Do you know what that's like? Does anyone in the sanctuary, can anyone say amen to that? Okay. I was wondering if I was alone. We know what it's like to start things and not finish it, but do you know who doesn't know what that's like? The God in heaven. You know, there are no unfinished projects in heaven. There are no unfinished projects in heaven. If you go to Scotland, this is on my bucket list to go to uh, outside of Edinburgh here is the National Monument in Scotland. It well, started in 1822, 42,000 pounds needed to be raised to acknowledge and to honor the Scotsmen who died in the Napoleonic Wars of the early 19th century. 42,000 pounds was the goal. They raised 24,000 pounds. So in 1826, four years after the, the start of the fundraising campaign, they built 12 columns and the foundation. 200 years later, you go to Scotland, it is still an unfinished monument, never completed. And that is true in Alabama. That's true in the United States. There there are places and nooks and crannies of the best laid plans that just didn't have every T crossed and every I dotted. But we can be sure of this, Paul says, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That, that he is the assurance of our salvation. So when we look into the mirror and say, boy, there's not been enough growth in my life. And when Satan whispers in our ears, well, you surely cannot be a Christian and still think that and still do that. We say to him, you're a liar. My salvation doesn't rest in what I see in the mirror. My salvation rests in the one who is perfect, who came to this earth and lived a life that I could not live and died a death that I deserve to die. And I look to Christ for my assurance because he doesn't start something that he will not finish. This is our hope. This is what Paul is praying for. A prayer of assurance, a prayer of thanksgiving. But finally this morning we see a prayer of growth. This is a powerful intercessory prayer. This is really the heart of what Paul wanted to pray for. It just took him a while to get to sort of the heart of his prayer request here, and that is that their love may abound in knowledge and all discernment. He prays that their love will multiply, and that's not surprising. You you pick up themes through Paul's letters he repeats himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's going to pick up themes, and he, and he talks about it in one book, and he talks about it in another book. And here's one of these themes. When you go to Galatians chapter 5, you have the fruit of the Spirit and the leadoff hitter of that litany of the characteristics of God that are displayed through the Spirit of God in your life. What's the first one? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience. Love. When he's writing to the church at Corinth and there's all of this discord, all of this confusion, all of these things that a preacher in the 21st century just can't go into detail about because it's just so scandalous. That was going on 2,000 years ago. And Paul, in one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, says at the very end, so now faith, hope, and love abides. These three, but the greatest of these is love. But notice when Paul is praying for their love to abound, he he prays that their love may abound with knowledge and discernment. It's not an either or for the Apostle Paul. He's not saying, hey, I'm praying that you would love or have knowledge and discernment. That your knowledge and discernment be, be the fuel of your love is what he's praying here. Love without knowledge is just mere sentimentality. It's just mere emotion without any direction. But think about this. Knowledge without love, what's a clanging symbol? It's it's intellectual arrogance and intellectual pride. You've got all the right answers, but you have not love. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 13. So Paul says this, I want your love to abound more and more with knowledge and with discernment. I love uh, one of my dear professors at Beeson Divinity School at Sanford was Robert Smith, Dr. Smith, and just like a father in the faith to me. And he would always talk about how, how we not need to divorce what God has joined together, the head and the heart. You've heard him preach here, the cranial and the cardial, he says. That our love and our mind are, are not to be things that, that we put in these polar opposites, but, but we connect them together through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is praying for that in this moment here. Why do we need knowledge and discernment? Well, he answers that in verse 10 in his prayer. To approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. 
interpreters starting back in the third century. They looked at these two requests in verse 10 and saw to approve what is excellent. Well, what Paul is talking about is the discernment to know what is right and what is wrong. To know what is good and what is evil. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know, but I tell you this, it doesn't tell us everything that we might be curious to know. And so there are times that we as followers of Jesus, we must be led by the Spirit to be able in the 21st century to see, here's this before us. Is this true or is this false? Is this right or is this wrong? And there's not always at first glance the clarity. So we need on our knees to ask God to help us with love, to be filled with knowledge, to be filled with discernment, to approve what is excellent also, as the interpreters would say, to be pure and blameless. We, not, we don't just need to be able to know that this is true and this is false, this is right and this is wrong, but to be pure and blameless. There's an outward growth. There's an outward direction of our love. It's not just an intellectual quiz that we can try to make a hundred on, but it's intended to, to have application at home, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplace, that, that there, this love actually spills over to those that are closest to us. And all of this will look like, well, again, he comes to the end of this section, and he says, I'm praying that this love will be filled with knowledge, be filled with discernment, so you can approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then he says in verse 11, so that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What in the world is he talking about? The fruit of righteousness. Well, again, if you were here this summer, one of the reoccurring themes that we talked about in Galatians chapter 5 was the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, these non-characteristics of God. Here's Paul utilizing a different phrase to talk about the same truth, that as Christians, we are filled with the righteousness of God that is outside of us in the perfect life and obedience of Jesus that we receive by faith when we trust in Him as our Savior. But it isn't enough just for us to be saved, but we're saved to do good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved to do good works. And those good works are the righteousness that we're able to share through the righteousness of Christ that lives in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So there is an aspect of this that's right living. This is the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, these non-characteristics that should grow in our lives. Now, this whole summer, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm preaching week in and week out this series on the fruit of the Spirit, and it was so convicting to me, your pastor. There are ever times where you, you see the truth of God's Word and you look into the mirror and you say, uh, that, that we want to see fruit, but boy, it says love and joy, and, and I can see discord even in my own heart, impatience instead of patience. Have you been there? Is it just me? The answer is no. We all have been there. And there are times where we, we pray, God, may the, may the fruit of righteousness grow, and then we look and we can't see the evident growth around us, and we long for more growth in us. And, and what are the reasons? Well, sometimes, sometimes it is that we are far away from the source of growth. It is only He, Christ, that can give the growth. And there are times there are spiritual droughts in our life. 
where, where we remove ourselves from the, the power of the Word of God and prayer, the, the very sunlight and water that gives the growth in our souls. That can happen. But other times, other times, we can forget that it takes time for fruit to grow. Do you know this? There are times, I think, when you're raising children who have become followers of Jesus, and you say, they're not acting like that. And you see that in your own life as you're trying to raise your children, and impatience overcomes you, and you're not walking with Him, and you say, boy, I feel so far from Him. And we have to be reminded at times that it takes time for fruit to grow. I love the way C.S. Lewis in mere Christianity, he, he talks about this very thing where we can be in worship with, with one another and we can see some of the grouchiest, most impatient people who are followers of Jesus. And we see that in our own soul. And Lewis said, can you imagine what they would be like if they did not have the Holy Spirit living inside of them? <laughs> and I can say amen to that. If you think I'm grouchy and impatient, could you imagine if I did not have the Spirit of God working in me right now? When I was a little kid, I don't know if you had these kinds of experiences, but I would go to my grandmother's house, say for a week or two weeks at times. That was summer camp for a lot of us. We'd show up on Monday morning. For me, my, mom, uh, my dad's mom uh, lived in Yazoo City, Mississippi. Jerry Clower, Zig Ziglar, these uh, uh, Willie Morris, the, the gateway of the Mississippi Delta. My grandmother was, she is the hardest working person I know. I mean, she just has grit and determination all through her. I'd go to her house at the age of six. She still had an outhouse in the backyard. I mean, this was, this was, this was truly going to the country. And that's saying something when you live in Mississippi. Because it's a, a lot of it's the country. And so I mean, she had indoor plumbing here, so I'm not, I'm not going to, you know. So, but we still had the outhouse back there. And this wasn't like a renovate. For those of you, this isn't a porter john because they were renovating the house in the backyard. This was a true outhouse here. She had across the street this huge garden. Every day she would go across the street. She would work this garden. I had absolutely no interest in going alongside of her. Shelling peas, I didn't want to do any. This is hard, tedious work. Many of you know what that kind of work's like. You can romanticize that all you want to. I wanted to be in the air conditioner. I wanted to be playing baseball or fishing. That's what I wanted to do. But she could get me across the street with the promise. The promise of what? Well, at the early outset, every time I would go to the summer, we would have a goal to plant watermelon seeds. I remember vividly being so excited, five, six years old. Mom got me the seeds. I came over, Grandma, Grandma, let's do this early this morning. So we planted the seeds. The next morning, I ran across the street with her, and I looked to the place I planted the seeds, and did I see vines sprouting up? What's the answer? No, I was furious. I was just, uh, you know, I, what's going on? Why not a big watermelon to be able to cut right now? The next morning, woke up, ran over there. No watermelon leaves, no vines that are sprouting out of the ground. Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, go home. There was never a time I would go to her house where we could plant the seeds on Monday and then pick that ripe watermelon on Friday. Why? You know this. You get this. It takes time 
to grow. But don't be misled that while you cannot see the vine sprouting forth from the ground, there's work that is being done under the soul. There's work that is being done in places that we cannot see. And there are times where we as Christians long to be able to see the growth. But when we cannot see the growth, be reminded, be reminded that the Spirit of God is still doing a work. And oftentimes that work is in the tilling of the hard ground of our soul. The hard ground of our heart. My friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, the seed of salvation has been planted in your life and it will bear fruit, but it takes time. God is the source of all of our growth and that growth is planted in in, in rocky, arid, dry condition that we know to be our heart. And am I sure of, of my salvation because I can look into the mirror and see perfect growth? And the answer is no. Am I sure of my salvation because I can look into the, to the heart of families and look into the heart of each and every one of us and see perfect growth? And the answer is no. So how can I be sure of the assurance of salvation? It is if God has planted the seed, he will bring it to harvest perfectly. How do I know this? Because the Bible tells me so.